0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Is American journalism broken? I'm Sean Illing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've been asking some variation of this question for the last four years, and my answer over and over again is yes. Now, let me say this part clearly. There's a ton of great journalism being done right now by thousands of talented and well-intentioned reporters. But I believe the Trump era has exposed some core pathologies in journalism. And it's not just the commercial incentives driving coverage. That's been a problem for a long time. It's also the reality of the internet and social media and all the ways it's transformed how we consume and therefore practice politics. In this episode, I talk with Marty Barron, who recently retired from the Washington Post after serving as the executive editor since 2013. Barron came to the Post after a long, and storied career in the business. Most famously, he oversaw the Boston Globe's reporting on the sexual abuse scandal within the Catholic Church, which was later turned into the Oscar-winning film Spotlight. And he was at the helm of The Post as it transitioned into the digital era. And of course, he was there during the entire Trump presidency. Now that he stepped away and had some time to reflect, not just on what he did at The Post, but also on our profession more generally, I want to ask him, What's gone wrong? And how deep are the problems we're facing? Marty Baron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First off, how the hell is retirement? Are, are you bored? Are you, are you jogging on a beach every day? What's going on? Uh,
1: well, I'm not even close to a beach. I'm in the woods, but retirement is going well. Uh, it's nice to have more freedom, more flexibility, I'm uh, working on a book and enjoying spending more time with friends. Well, we appreciate you
0: taking the time. I want to start by asking, and you know, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but it's true enough. In the world of journalism and, and academia, there's more or less kind of two camps over the last particularly four years or so. There are those who think American democracy is, you know, flawed, but stable and ultimately resilient. We're going to be fine. And then there are those who say this is a five alarm fire and it's near panic time. Where are you on that spectrum at the moment, Marty?
1: I guess I'm somewhere in between, to tell you the truth. Uh, I think there are enormous concerns right now about the future of our democracy. I think it's shown itself to be more fragile and more vulnerable than we ever imagined. On the other hand, I'd like to keep in mind that our democracy has been tested and ways that are more grave than what we've seen over the last four or five years. We had a civil war in this country, I think it's important to remember. We've had all sorts of other huge crises, and we came through. And so, you know, I maintain confidence that we'll get through this, but I think that we're encountering some severe threats to democracy today, particularly the challenge to truth, the questioning of objective reality, and that people can't seem to even agree on the facts and even what constitutes a fact and how we determine what is a
0: fact. Trump is sort of the elephant in the room there. So let's just let's just start right there. Something you said recently, I don't know if it was a speech or an interview, but you said that you were proud of how you covered the Trump administration. I mean, I'm curious, what are
1: you especially proud of? Well, look, I think part of the job of a news organization like The Post is to hold government to account, particularly if they're not telling the truth. There were a lot of falsehoods, a lot of lies, a lot of misinformation and disinformation over the course of the previous administration. I think some of that is true of any administration, but it was taken to a degree that we have never seen before in this country. And so I am proud of how we kept faith with the truth, uh, notwithstanding the attacks that we
0: came under. You also said that, and I think you may say this multiple times, that, you know, quote, we're not at war, we being the media or, or Washington Post, we're not at war with the administration, we're at work. I'm curious what you meant there as well. I mean, obviously there are a lot of Trump voters who disagree with that. Why are they wrong or where are they wrong on that front? Well, it's not just
1: Trump voters who seem to disagree with that.
0: It's people on the left who say, no,
1: you actually are in a war with the previous administration. You were in a war with the previous administration and you're deluding yourself to say that you're not. But I don't think that I am deluding myself. Look, I mean, when Trump came into office, Steve Bannon called us the opposition party. The Trump administration wanted us to be seen as the opposition party. And I think we have to be careful not to become the opposition party. Our job is to uh, report the facts, put them in proper context, tell people what's going on in an unflinching and honest and honorable way. That's our job. That is the work that we are supposed to do. That is not engaging in war. That is just doing our work. We do that work regardless of the administration. We have been uh, at odds with previous administrations and local newspapers all over the country and all over the world often find themselves at odds, whether it's municipal government or state government or the federal government, politicians of all sorts. But I think we have to keep in mind that our job is not to wage war against any administration. Our job is to get the facts, put them in proper context, and then tell people, honestly and straightforwardly what's going on and I think there's a distinct difference between those
0: yeah my sense of this is that you well I really should say we instead of you because basically everything I'm going to say here that even sounds like a criticism is really a criticism of the press not you or the Washington Post or really any outlet in particular But I think that we, a lot of us, did not want to accept the adversarial role, but I'm not sure we had a choice. We were thrust into that by dint of circumstances. I mean, simply by virtue of doing the job, which is to say telling the truth as best we see it, we were going to be an oppositional force to someone like Trump who's invested in lies. Is that the wrong way to to see it?
1: Well, you know, people have talked about the adversarial relationship between the press and government and politicians for a long time, well before Donald Trump ever found his way onto the political landscape. That's just part of the job. I don't think that we go about our work seeking to be an adversary, but in doing our work, we often find ourselves in an adversarial relationship. I would say that we found ourselves in an adversarial relationship, perhaps more frequently with the Trump administration. I would say almost certainly more frequently, not to be so cautious about it, but that's the way it is. And we weren't out to defeat him. We weren't out to wage war with him. You know, on his very first full day in office, he went to the CIA. And instead of really talking about (laughs) intelligence matters and the heroics of a good number of CIA agents over the years, decades, uh, given where he was standing at at the time, uh, he said that, as many of you know, I'm at war with the press. And I don't see myself as being at war with any administration. I did not see myself as being at war with his administration. I saw our job is let's find out what's going on let's do it honestly, aggressively, energetically, truthfully, honorably, all of that. Do it thoroughly. And when we've done our job and we've done it right, let's tell people what we've found out. And that's it. Uh, we have a democracy in this country. People get to decide who is in government. But our job is to tell people what they need and deserve to know in order to be engaged citizens in a democracy.
0: We were just saying a minute ago that journalists kind of held the line, kind of stood firm against this assault on objective fact on on reality, really. And I know what you mean, but I'm curious if you think the work that you did, the work that any of us did really mattered in the way we wanted it to matter, in the way we hoped it mattered.
1: Well, you
0: know, that's a good question. I mean,
1: I, I think it mattered. First of all, whether, I think what you're asking is whether people always accepted what it is we were reporting. I mean, it mattered in its own right because the best work was well done and was truthful and kept faith with the facts and with objective reality. You know, whether people were willing to accept that or not is another matter. You know, there's a lot of distrust in the press and mainstream media, and I understand that. That is deeply concerning. It is a huge challenge for us. I think it's a huge challenge for society as a whole that people are unwilling to accept basic facts, that they're unwilling to acknowledge objective reality. That's not just a challenge for us. It's a challenge for society as a whole. But I think our work mattered. I also think that we need to keep the long term in mind. You know, I look back at at Watergate and press was accused of a lot of the same things that it's been accused of over the last four to five years. That was a partisan exercise, that the press was simply trying to bring down uh, Richard Nixon. The phrase fake news wasn't in currency then, but the point essentially was made, or at least there was an assertion that we were not telling the truth and that we were biased and what have you. But it turned out that the work of the press was validated, and that took some time. And I think we can't be impatient. We're going to have to wait a bit. And I'm quite sure that the work that we've done will be validated. I hope so. And by the way, a lot of it already has been.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll just put my cards on the table here and, you know, let you reflect however you want because you're I think better positioned than I am to maybe reflect on these things. I mean, I have felt personally like the work I tried to do didn't really matter all that much, and the work that a lot of us have tried to do didn't matter all that much because for me, a journalistic project committed to the defense of truth is only successful or maybe meaningful is is the right word there if it creates a world in which lying is costly, in which the tendency of powerful people to lie is at least checked. I mean, if that's the measure, I feel like I failed and a lot of us failed. And to be clear, and for reasons I'll explain later, I think we were doomed to fail but i suspect you may disagree with that kind of gloomy assessment so well let's you...
1: see yeah well i think that's very defeatist of you yeah. uh I, <laughs> no no doubt i can't be so defeatist and if that's how we feel then we should just all give it up yeah. and i don't believe in giving up and i think that if you look over history you'll see that there are many things that whether it was the press or historians or commentators of other types you name it even scientists and doctors and people in all sorts of fields who did not feel validated in their time but they were validated over the, the years that were to come. And so their work really mattered in that way. We live in a time where people expect instant results. And I think that creates unreasonable expectations on our part. And, you know, I'm willing to be more patient. Can it be frustrating? Sure. But I don't think we should be defeatist. And I don't think you should be defeatist. So try to cheer
0: up a little bit. Well, I'm working on it uh, along with my my therapist. <laughs> Well, I was, you know, in preparing for this, I was thinking about Glenn Kessler, the fact checker for the Wash Poe, and, you know, who famously documented, what was it, the 20,000 lies that Trump had told over the course of his presidency and campaign. And, and obviously, you know, all that fact checking wasn't a deterrent because the guy kept telling all the lies. And it just, that's what I had in mind when I think I feel like we're just sort of banging our heads against the wall here in vain. Some of the time?
1: Well, I would say it takes time. I mean, if you look back at uh, any number of different periods in history in the United States or elsewhere, the McCarthy hearings, Joe McCarthy was able to get away with a lot for a long period of time, but it didn't last forever.
0: Yeah. Something I'm kind of inching my way towards here is it seems to me that we've reached the end of, of what some people would call the gatekeeping age or the age of media gatekeepers. Before the internet, before social media, most people got their news from. a handful of papers or or TV networks, you know, Walter Cronkite or whatever. These institutions functioned like referees. They called out the lies and they fact-checked all the claims and, and so on. And they had the ability to control or manage the flow of information and in that way impose borders on the public conversation, on the discourse. Today, gatekeepers still matter. I mean, the New York Times, the Washington Post... Wall Street Journal, these institutions still matter in terms of setting a baseline for political knowledge. But there's so much more competition for clicks and audiences, and there's so many more choices. And that has altered the incentives for what's newsworthy in the first place. And the consequence of that is we're in this kind of epistemological wilderness. And as someone who is running one of the most important gatekeeping institutions in the country, I wonder how you think about that. Right.
1: Well, I think, you know, you make a good point. It's clear that we have many more media outlets, uh, and not just media outlets, but any individual can essentially become a media outlet. And uh, many do, uh, and they spread uh, all sorts of falsehoods and conspiracy theories. But at the, at the same time, there are individuals who have been given a greater voice, and they are very useful sources of quality information. And those are voices that may not have been heard in the past. There are communities that are being heard in a way that they haven't been in the past, I mean, some of the people who cheered the greater diversity of voices, understandably, were people in marginalized communities, people on the left who felt that the mainstream media had a stranglehold on communicating with the public. And so, yeah, we do have a lot more voices. In fact, that's why we have Fox media these days. You know, in the old days, we just had three networks. Uh, we had, you know, limited sources of national radio. We had in any one community, you had one or two newspapers. Uh, you didn't even have a national newspaper before, really, before the 1990s, when the New York Times became one. And I guess the Wall Street Journal already was one, but with a more limited audience. And so people felt that wasn't enough. And I understand that. And now there's the feeling that there's too much and that it allows the spread of falsehoods, conspiracy theories, all sorts of dangerous material that's essentially dangerous and a threat to society. And it's true. The traditional news organizations, like whether it's the Washington Post or the New York Times or, you know, one of the networks, they don't have a hold on the on the national discourse in the way that they did in the past. Uh, so that has brought some severe disadvantages, but it has also allowed a lot of people to have a voice
0: when they were denied a voice previously. Do you feel like the benefits of this addition of new voices, which are obvious enough, do you think those benefits outweigh the cost or the harms? Well, I'm not sure I've settled that in my own mind at this stage. And
1: at the end of the day, there's nothing I can do about it. It is the what it is. It's the product of the internet. And the internet has allowed any one individual to be essentially an international television network. If they want to, they can just go on and be on YouTube. Their voice can be heard all over the world. With Twitter, same thing. Facebook, same thing. That's the world we live in. What I think is not going to change that. The question is, you know, how do reliable sources of information persuade people that they're doing their work properly and that they are, in fact, presenting objective reality and the facts?
0: All I can do is focus on what we can control. As you were sort of steering the, the ship that is the Washington Post as a digital revolution was underway, did you sometimes wish We could go back to the pre-digital media world? Uh, Yeah, you bet. I mean, when I was
1: working at the Boston Globe as the editor, uh, that was, you know, in the early 2000s. That's when high-speed broadband really started to penetrate this country. That made possible mobile devices. It's what led to the development of social media. It's what deprived a lot of traditional news organizations of the revenue that they used to have largely exclusively to themselves, and all that money started to flow to large tech platforms. And so, you know, we were hobbled, and we were losing readers, we were losing advertising, we were losing everything. So, sure, was I in a period of mourning then? Yeah, but I got over it, because as I said before, all I can do is really focus on what I can control, and I wasn't going to be able to change those circumstances, and I certainly wasn't going to remain in the state of mourning forever, because that doesn't do any good. And even in life, you know, when a close relative or a close friend passes away, you can be in mourning for a while and should be. But you do have to go on living your life and living it as best you can. And that's how I think about our profession
0: as well. Do you like this term, post-truth? Do you think we're living in, in the post-truth era or do you feel like that term is unhelpful? Uh,
1: you know, I haven't thought that much about the term. I'm not a particular fan of it because I don't think there is such a thing as post-truth. I think there is such a thing as truth. It's not easy to get at hard. You have to overcome a lot of obstacles to get to it. We sometimes arrive at approximations of the truth. And I think we have to recognize the limitations to what we know and how much we actually don't know before we declare something to be the truth. But to sort of say we live in a post-truth world suggests that there is no such thing as truth and that everything is malleable, that it's all just a matter of opinion or it's a matter of who holds power or who has the biggest megaphone or what have you.
0: So I'm not a... particular fan of the term but i haven't really thought about it very much i think i've come to to hate that term for different reasons for me at least we can't be post-truth because we never really lived in truth i don't think in the way people suppose we did what we had in my opinion was a liberal order in which media gatekeepers like the post dictated what passed as truth or at least imposed limits on the number of claims to truth and has that order as unraveled or that order has unraveled, rather. And even if it still existed, we have this other problem, related problem, which is the collapse of public trust in elite institutions. And that collapse of faith in authority is incredibly important and not terribly understood. You know, Truth ultimately is a function of authority. I mean, we all believe all sorts of things to be true, not because we've you know, tested it in a lab or done the work, But because authorities we trust said it was true. And if there are no authorities or recognized authorities, we've kind of lost truth. Do you think that's, again, too gloomy? Well, you are pretty gloomy. (laughs) What can I say? I'll warm up, I promise.
1: Yeah, really. You really do need to cheer (laughs) up. I don't know how you get through the day. Coffee, mostly. Look, I mean, I I understand your point, but I don't think that it's... I think there are such things as facts. I do think there is such a thing as truth. The media was not, has not always been successful, but it's been successful quite a bit. And I think people should recognize that. I mean, I think that if you go back and you look at, let's say, the coverage of the Vietnam War, ultimately, you know, the press was showing what a disaster it really was. If you look at, as I mentioned on Watergate, what was being reported, even though it was being denied, turned out that was the truth. I think you can find innumerable instances of the truth being reported and to sort of suggest that it's just sort of a construct of mainstream media institutions and there is no such thing and it's just their truth and I've got my truth. And frankly it sounds a lot like alternative facts to me. So I no, I don't I guess I don't subscribe to what
0: exactly you're saying. You know, and just to clarify, I don't contest that there isn't a truth. I, I'm not a relativist. I would just question a lot of people's kind of romantic understanding of the role of truth in governing public life in the you know, before times? No,
1: it's, it's sure. I mean, look, there are many myths out there. There are myths in history, there are myths in the, our current affairs. Things that were sometimes presented as truth were not that. I recognize that. You know, And certainly as news organizations, we have many failings of our own and we can all point to them. The fact that we can point to them, that if we're being honest with ourselves, means
0: that's a good sign. Do you think liberal democracy, or let me just be more specific, you know, our liberal democracy can function, can continue to function in an in information climate like the one we have, which presumably is not going away anytime soon? In fact, we'll probably just get worse or more chaotic. I think it's going to be really
1: difficult. It is already really difficult because in order to have a democracy, I think we do have to agree on a common set of facts, basic facts. And we can't seem to do that. I mean, we can argue over the policies. I believe we should argue over the policies. We should argue over what the problems are. We should argue over how to solve those problems. Uh, That's the nature of a democracy. But fundamentally, we, we have to agree on some basic facts. And we seem incapable of doing that today. I mean, January 6th is a classic example of that. How is it that you know a good portion of the population in the United States thinks that that was a false flag operation, that that was Antifa instead of Trump supporters? How is it that a former president of the United States can claim that that mob was hugging and kissing the police, as he has said? That's just complete nonsense. The American public is somehow not even agreeing on who won the election in 2020, which is preposterous. I mean, that is a fact that Biden won the election, and yet uh, you still have a large portion of the population who will not accept that. So that's difficult. For a democracy, if not an
0: impossible situation. It is. It is. Now look who's starting to sound gloomier by the minute here. Oh,
1: you're taking me down. I'm starting
0: to win you over.
1: You're taking me down this path. Welcome
0: aboard. Lots of space on the pessimism train.
1: Well, you know, as I said, when you launched this conversation, you asked where I was on the spectrum, I guess, (laughs) that you laid out. And I said I was somewhere in the middle. And I am somewhere in the middle. I mean, I'm not without hope that we can't get through it. That's the point that I'm making, so...
0: Let's take a quick break, but when we're back, the way Americans get their news has changed. What does that mean for a legacy publication like the Washington Post? That's after the break. What do you think the Washington Post? an institution like the Washington Post means in a world where the media is so fragmented and millions of people get half their news from Facebook feeds? Well,
1: I think the Post plays an incredibly important role and continues to do so, notwithstanding (laughs) the points that you've made already. During the Trump administration, we had over 100 million people reading at least one of our stories every, every month. We have, you know, a subscription base of Three million people with digital-only subscriptions, in addition to the people who are buying the print edition of the paper. Our stories circulated throughout other media. Other newspapers picked it up. Uh, So it reached even more people. I think it has a tremendous impact. And so I think it's important to have an institution like The Post, which has high standards, which is committed to, as it says in its first principle, to ascertaining the truth as nearly as it may be ascertained. It's really committed to that. I think that's
0: really important. I saw a a Gallup poll, it may be a a year or two old, and maybe there's newer data, but the Gallup poll showed that less than half the country trust what they read in the press. And that is indicative of a a much broader trend of just general declines in public trust in the press in general, not the Washington Post in particular, but the press. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people are, are trusting, you know, major media outlets less and less?
1: Well, I think the bigger picture is a is lack of trust in institutions generally in this country. If you look at trust in major institutions in this country, they've declined for just about every institution except for the military. It used to be, I would say, except for the military and for the police but the police have suffered a lack of trust as well. But there's been a lack of trust in major big business, a lack of trust in organized religion. There's been a lack of trust in Congress and the presidency. Uh, all of those things have declined. So I don't think the press stands alone in that regard, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. I think the greater threat to society is, is just a lack of trust in institutions. And how do we get that back? I think with regard to the press specifically, a lot of it has to do with the rise of the Internet. And the fact is that, as you pointed out, there are so many more sources of information or so-called information these days than there used to be. People can now turn to something that simply reinforces their pre-existing view. They can find that wherever they want. If they have a conspiracy theory, sure enough, they can find somebody who will tell them that what they think is exactly right. And people do tend to gravitate to sites that tell them that they're exactly right. They live in their own echo chamber, and they want that. They want their positions to be reinforced. Uh, the Internet allows that. It facilitates that. It even rewards that commercially. I think that that contributes to a, a lack of trust because there are going to be many sites out there that will tell people what you're reading in the mainstream press is simply not true. They're not telling you the full story. And then those sites will tell you something completely different. And, of course, that uh, leads to a lack of trust in major mainstream news organizations.
0: What do you make of the rise of substack and independent journalism? I mean, obviously, a huge part of that is just the internet, which has made all these things possible. But do you also see in that at least partly an indictment of traditional or or legacy media?
1: I don't see an indictment of legacy media. I mean, who's most successful a lot of people who are very successful on places like Substack are people who came from mainstream media, people who worked in mainstream media, and they acquired their reputations in mainstream media. What helped them build their reputations was their work at mainstream news organizations. You know, specifically with regard to Substack, I think we need to give it some time to see how it's all going to work out. I don't really know. I've seen so many things declared as the next big thing that I'm a little bit skeptical of the next big thing. So I want to see how it works out. I mean, it's hard for me me to imagine, knowing how difficult it is to just get somebody to subscribe, to imagine that people will pay essentially the same price for one writer as they do for a subscription to the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, what have you.
0: I'm a little skeptical that that's going to be sustained, but we'll see. I could easily be proven wrong. You talked a lot about this idea of journalistic objectivity and i know there's a media critic jay rosen he he calls this the savvy style which is the conventional journalistic norm that says reporters are just spectators of the process when in fact they're also actors whether they want to be or not right the choices we make the things we do or don't focus on impacts the very events we're covering and the criticism is that that willed blindness, as it were, leads to a lot of problems. I mean, I guess that's the general diagnosis from people like Rosen. And I I think there's some truth there, a lot of truth, in fact. Do you buy that diagnosis? I'm not sure I fully understand it, but
1: I, you know, there's no willed blindness, I don't believe. if if one really looks at the origin of the idea of objectivity, the idea is that there shouldn't be will blindness. You need to keep your eyes open, you need to keep your ears open, you need to be a good listener, you need to be a good observer, you need to recognize the limitations of what you think you know, and that you may not know everything, and that you may not be as expert as you actually think you are, and so you actually need to do a job of reporting. And I think if, if reporting is not sort of keeping an open mind, thoroughly getting gathering the facts, trying to understand them, all of that, then somebody's going to have to explain to me what reporting really is. Is it just a matter of declaring what what it is you already
0: thought before you ever embarked on any such enterprise? Yeah, I I don't really see that. Yeah, will blindness may be a really clumsy, stupid way of saying what I was trying to say. I think maybe a better way to say it is not so much will blindness, but this insistence on seeing ourselves as spectators as opposed to actors is itself the problem because there's just simply no way. But I mean, look, I mean, we... On the concept of objectivity, you know, when we have judges
1: and we ask them to be objective in evaluating the facts in front of them, we have juries, we ask them to be objective. We have doctors, we ask them to be objective in their diagnoses of our our illnesses, uh, not to come in with a predetermined answer before they've actually evaluated the facts. All I ask for is the same thing on the part of journalists, is that we be objective in the same way. I don't see how, why it's such a good term for judges and doctors and scientists and
0: somehow a terrible
1: practice for journalists.
0: Yeah, I'll go back to the the Bannon quote that you gestured at earlier, because maybe that's a better way to kind of tease out um, an example of what we're talking about here. so the the full Bannon quote was...
1: I, I think there is a single quote, the most memorable quote of the Trump years, and it was uttered by Steve Bannon in early 2018. He said, the Democrats don't matter. The real opposition is the
0: media. And the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with... You see there. Shit. And I've written a lot about this and I don't have any answers for it. Somebody smarter than me will have to, to come up with answers for it. But here's an example of a consequence of the kind of reporting, at least that Rosen was talking about. And it just wasn't a criticism, again, of the Post in particular, just journalism in general. So the 2015 story, which I'm sure you recall, that you know, Hillary Clinton approved the sale of you know, American uranium to Russia in exchange for a big... Donation to the Clinton Foundation. Now that was a bullshit story that Steve Bannon fed to the New York Times knowing the paper would run with it because that's what mainstream media organizations do. And the Washington Post, like nearly every other major outlet, wrote lots of articles debunking that story. But that's the problem, right? That was the whole point of leaking it in the first place. Bannon wanted the media to talk about it, not to convince anyone that it was really true, though it surely did but to create a cloud of corruption around Clinton. And the mere fact that these claims are being contested or at all kind of accomplished that. And that's the thing I don't think, certainly I don't, I'm not sure if you do or, or anyone has an answer for. It's, it's a kind of systemic weakness that I, I've been grappling with for at least two years now and I'm just stuck in a cul-de-sac.
1: Right, well, I think that is an issue. I mean, I, I think we did the right thing uh, with regard to that story and others did as well. But just by talking about it, clearly it creates the impression that there's something wrong there. I don't know. Maybe Jay Rosen has an instant answer as to how to deal with that. I really don't. I mean, because if it's being something that's being discussed on, let's say the networks or it's being discussed in other outlets, should we not debunk it? We should just ignore it. If we ignore it, that doesn't mean that other people are going to ignore it. Uh It looks like we are deliberately siding with one party or one candidate. And so I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. As in many of these things, there's there's no easy
0: answer. And we just have to feel our way through it. I wish these things were easy, but they're not. They're most definitely not. Do you think it's even possible to cover bullshit without amplifying or normalizing it? Because that's really the rub here, right?
1: I think so. But, you know, I mean, I I think that has to be tested. I mean,
0: I'm not sure there's a lot of great research
1: on that subject, uh, frankly, or at least I'm not familiar with it. Does debunking merely just contribute to the spread of BS? Maybe it does, but maybe it also has a beneficial effect. So, I don't know. Are we just supposed to ignore it? Does that create its own problems? It probably does. You know, look, I mean, even just the coverage of Trump, I mean, people would say, well, don't cover, ignore him, just completely ignore him, because if it's BS, then just pretend it's not there. And then many of his opponents would say that, and many of the opponents would say, By not highlighting all the terrible things he's saying, you're letting him get away with it. Which is the correct answer? It's not clear. It's it's really hard. And you feel your way through it. And you decide which one's on almost on a case-by-case basis, which is something worth tackling and which one isn't. And if something is actually making its way into the political discourse and it's become a subject of debate, if it's something that's being raised in actual debate, let's say political debates, it's really hard for a news organization to just pretend that it's not actually happening.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's possible, not when everyone else is doing it. I mean, this is why the, the term I've used over and over again in, in some of my reporting on this is just hacked. It, the press has been hacked.
1: Right. I mean, I think, yeah, the objective is to try to create the impression that there is no such thing as truth, that everything is just a matter of opinion, that it's all opinion. Or to be more cynical, that who can possibly know what's true and what's false? And so to create an environment, to poison the environment, I don't know that we have good answers for how to deal with that. But I, I don't.
0: I mean, hell, Marty, I, I'd argue the zone would be flooded with shit with or without Steve Bannon or, or Donald Trump. For me, just the race for content, the, the need for clicks and for eyeballs is all you need to produce the result that we have. In some ways, we don't have a Steve Bannon problem. We have a political economy problem, right? I mean, just the nature of the business model of the press kind of lends itself to this kind of horse race coverage or this kind of frantic covering everything in a kind of mad competition with all the other outlets leads to a zone flooded with shit?
1: Well, even if you didn't have a press, you would just have individuals spreading this kind of stuff and you would have all the same shit that you have with or without a press. Look, I don't have a ready answer for it. In mainstream media, outlets, have to evaluate these things on a case-by-case basis and decide which ones are
0: really worth tackling and which ones aren't. And that's the best we can do. What was that evaluation process like for you when you were at The Post? I mean, you're you're a sharp guy. You have tons of really smart, talented reporters doing this work. And, you know, everyone there in the room was smart enough to understand what was happening. It was obvious what Trump was doing. What was the process like sifting through that and trying to make those decisions about you know, should we report this? Should we not? Is this just Trump throwing out another slab of red meat so that the press can run around like greyhounds chasing it so that he can just hijack the news cycle and, you know, on and on and on and on. How difficult. Was that for you in terms of making those decisions about what to cover and what not to cover?
1: Well, that's hard. And these decisions are not made by any one person. They're not made by me. Individually, we do hundreds of stories every—the post does hundreds of stories every single day. You know, the editor, the top editor doesn't sit there and say, do this, don't do that. Uh, Here's how to write this one. Here's how to write that one. That's just not possible. Look, I mean, at the beginning, I think that we paid more attention to what Trump was saying Uh, on his Twitter account than we did toward the end, and I think that we were much more careful about the ones that we gave any attention whatsoever, but his Twitter account also was a real window into the way that a president was thinking, and it was a window into the policies that he intended to implement, and so it's difficult to decide which ones deserve your attention and which ones don't, because those tweets were often a
0: prelude to actual policies. They were. Okay, we're going to take one more short break, but when we come back, can journalists tackle lies simply by exposing them? I'll ask Marty after the break. Do you think it's still possible to conquer lies by exposing them? This old idea that, you know, sunlight disinfects. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. Absolutely, I do. And I think we've seen that happen. Yeah. You know, I'd, there is some research showing that fact-checking does tend to increase the accuracy of beliefs. But again, you know, the point of zone flooding is to ensure that there's a, an overabundance of news, that the importance of any individual story is diminished. So if you're a bullshit artist like Trump, you don't have to disprove anything. You just have to keep the press locked in this e- eternal game of of whack-a-mole. Trump is gone sort of, but it's easy to imagine this blueprint being copied, right? Yeah,
1: but look, I mean on the bigger issue that you're talking about, I mean whether the press can expose lies. Yeah, I mean I think if you go from, I mean just as one example, I mean you take a look at the Me Too stories that were pursued by the press, in many instances the press exposed lies and it had an impact and it had an immediate impact. You know, the whole world is not Donald Trump and the coverage of Donald Trump is not the entire coverage of the press. Uh, we cover a lot of different things, and it's evident that the press has a tremendous impact. You know, I look back on my own career and work we did at the Boston Globe in exposing a cover-up of sexual abuse among clergy in the Catholic Church. Yeah. It had an immediate impact, and it's had an enduring impact. It continues to have an impact, and not just an impact on the church, but an impact on how many institutions are dealing with allegations of sexual abuse. I think it's just way too easy to be too dismissive of the capacity
0: of the press to highlight the truth. There is a paradox here, though, right? I mean, I think a lot of people assume that more information is, if not quite the answer, always a good thing, at least more accurate information. And it's true, there's a lot of bullshit percolating out there right now. But there's also the access to facts has never been easier. But more information hasn't produced a more informed citizenry or more Enlightened form of civic engagement. It's led to you know more noise and more partisanship and more reactionary posturing. I mean, did, how do you make sense of that paradox? Or is it even a paradox for you?
1: Well, it is a paradox. I can't make sense of it other than that people are simply unwilling to accept facts because they don't conform to their pre existing views. People will be more receptive to information that, or so called information, or whatever it might be, it could be misinformation that reinforces their pre existing views then they are going to be receptive to something that challenges their pre-existing views. It's just human nature. That's been true throughout all time. It's just that the impact of that, the ramifications of that today with the internet are far greater than they ever have been. And the
0: ramifications can be instantaneous. On that front, do you think the internet has changed us, changed human nature, changed the way people think about the world, the way they process the world? Or do you think it, I don't know, made us more of what we always were? (laughs) Gosh, boy, these such big thoughts.
1: Uh I haven't had. I'm not sure I'd even think big thoughts this as big as the ones that you're presenting me with. I honestly don't know. I mean, I. Probably a bit of both, you know. I mean, I think that the internet has revealed aspects of us that we that we had not focused on or had not realized before. And at the same time, it's created patterns of behavior, or it's certainly facilitated and fomented patterns of behavior that uh, wouldn't have existed prior to the the internet. So
0: it's a bit of both, I would say. Well, look, I mean, going to the the digital revolution. I mean, you've been lauded, I think, rightly for how quickly you embraced the digital revolution and in, in the internet. And I think you and others were right because resistance would have been suicidal, right? There was just, you had to adapt or die. Um, But I am curious what journalistic price you think we, the political press, paid for this transformation into the social media world.
1: Well, I think we've paid a price. I mean, a number of different ways. I mean, I think the speed at which uh, news needs to be delivered today is, in a way, it's too fast. I mean, people want information instantaneously, and so we provide them information instantaneously, but it's information without context. Uh, The context is going to have to come along later if it ever comes along at all. So that's one problem. The other is, you know, social media has a lot of advantages, and it's given voice to a lot of people, as it should, more people who weren't given a voice before. At the same time, I think that it's allowed, facilitated a pattern of behavior, among journalists that I don't think is terribly helpful. People are, I think, way too willing to express their own personal views on social media, people who work for uh, major news organizations, and I don't think that's a very good idea.
0: Why do you think that was a bad idea? What's the problem with that?
1: Well, I think that it just undermines the credibility of the institution. I think that our job, at least on the news side, unless you're going to be an opinion writer, is to do is what I exactly talked about before, which is Get the facts, put them in proper context, and tell people in a straightforward, unflinching way what it is we've learned. If any individual can say whatever he or she wants on whatever subject he or she wants, using whatever language he or she wants, whether they're expert in the subject or not expert in the subject, that creates an impression that it's the institution speaking rather than the individual speaking. And it can form an impression of the Post, of Times, or Fox, or whatever it might be. That is not what we would like it to be, and that undermines our ability to sort of present to the public uh, information in the way that we feel is an appropriate way. Institutionally, we believe is the appropriate
0: way. Do you even see a way to circumnavigate that problem in this kind of world where the walls between writers and readers is kind of broken down? i mean is is there any way to kind of maintain that that need separation between news and opinion?
1: Uh, I think there is, and that is that we need to have guidelines and rules within these institutions as to what the proper behavior should be and what is prohibited and that people need to abide by those rules. But if people are not willing to abide by those rules,
0: then all of that collapses. Was this kind of a generational clash for you? I mean, there's been, at least at the post, I mean, obviously there's been, you know, I think pretty significant cultural shifts in media institutions and, and a lot of times the kind of divisions fall along generational lines? I mean, was that, how difficult was that for you to navigate?
1: Well, I mean, look, I had my share of controversies, but yeah, I think it falls uh, not entirely, but heavily along generational lines. I think that people of a younger generation feel they should have more freedom to express themselves on social media and that the institution should have nothing to say about it or very little to say about it. And among older journalists, they don't
0: necessarily subscribe to that approach. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a generational divide. There's also a weird tension here. I mean, social media has turned a lot of writers into celebrities, really. And you know their, their media companies have really cashed in on that celebrity. I mean, some more than other. The, the, the Times, I think, has been a little more aggressive than The Post in embracing that kind of rock star model. But do you think that that dynamic has maybe perverted the way a lot of us approach journalism? you know, the pursuit of, of stardom and, you know, getting captured by audiences or or whatever?
1: I don't know that it's really a pursuit of stardom. I think it's more just a feeling on the part of a lot of individuals that they're entitled to express themselves, that they want to express themselves, that they see that as part of their own identity, that is true to themselves. I get that. I just don't happen to think that it's very wise behavior. Hmm.
0: I mean, my sense has been for a very long time that we just need a paradigm shift in how the press covers politics in a digital age. I think we need a new definition of news. Do you feel that way? Do you think we need to redefine news? And what might that look like? Uh, no, I actually don't. am sorry. <laughs> Come on, Marty. Really?
1: <laughs> I do not. We need a paradigm shift and what
0: we redefine what constitutes news. I don't know. What do you mean by that exactly? I, I mean a, a shift in what we deem worth covering and what we deem not worth covering. I think we need a. I think we need a self defense system against zone flooding to be precise. Okay, fine. You know, look, we learn
1: along the way. We're not a perfect profession. (laughs) Far from it. We're deeply flawed. We come to realize our flaws over a period of time. Sometimes it takes too long. The journalism of today is not the journalism that existed 50 years ago. It's very different. Go back and, you know, read newspapers uh, of 50 years ago. It's entirely different. You're talking about two different things. Look at television news today and compare it to what it was. In the early days of television news, it's just completely different. And the internet has also changed things because we now have all sorts of tools at our disposal that we never had before. Just simply the way that we tell stories. You look at how people have told, whether it's the Post, the New York Times, or others have told the story of what happened on January 6th using all of those tools that we have available, whether it's interactive graphics, animation, video, audio, text, you name it. It's been very, very powerful. That never would have been possible before. I think it's incredibly effective journalism. And so journalism is just always going to change. I don't know that we'll all agree on
0: whether those changes are a good thing or a bad thing. We probably won't agree, but it's going to change. I know you're not in the prophecy business, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway. What do you think the media landscape will look like in 10, 15, 20 years? Do you think it'll be recognizable, or do you think it might be utterly different? Well... I think it'll be recognizable.
1: I think we have a tendency to think things will move faster than they actually do. They move fast, very fast in certain ways, but they don't move as fast in other ways. I mean, I think it's going back 20 years that people were predicting that we wouldn't have actual physical print newspapers as of this date and they still exist. Now, I don't think they're going to continue to exist for all that much longer, but I'm not willing to predict as to when they disappear. And I'm not sure what form it's going to take. We are we live in an age of incredible experimentation. Some of that is incredibly exciting, and some of it is terrifying. And I think all the experimentation is really good. I mean, look, podcasts. (laughs) The journalism profession experimented with podcasts some time ago, and it didn't work out very well. Now, podcasts are seeing a lot of success there will be other things that are going to succeed. I think that journalism's going to become much more visual because we live in a much more visual society. So storytelling, the means of storytelling will become much more visual. As I indicated when I was talking about the coverage of January 6th, you can tell these stories through images. You don't have to tell them just through words. Words can be part of it. They don't even have to be the bulk of it. And it all will be working on some sort of mobile device, because most people will be getting most of their information off of a mobile device. And so that'll change the form. And, you know, beyond that, as you rightly said, I don't really engage in prophecy. So it's a little hard for me to predict
0: exactly how things will shape up. Well, this is a hard conversation, and these are problems without any obvious solutions. And... I just want to say that I really appreciate your time. You've had a remarkable career, and I wish you the very best in whatever's next for you. Thanks. I'm going to have to find a way to cheer myself up after this conversation. Next round on me. Okay. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drastowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. This is
1: very, very big, big, big thoughts here. Um, I've
0: been stewing on this for like two years.
1: I wasn't prepared for that. I would (laughs) have had to spend a day thinking big thoughts before I got onto this
0: conversation. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode.